It's time once again for Global Gene's Denim Dash. From March 19th to the 27th, participants from all over the world will once again run, walk, swim, bike, or roll the 3.1 miles, that's 5K, to raise money and awareness to eliminate the challenges of rare disease. This is a virtual race, so you've got the flexibility to participate wherever and whenever is most convenient for you. For more information and to get registered, go to crowdrise.com forward slash denim dash. That's crowdrise.com forward slash denim dash. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. As pharmaceutical companies, spurred by the Orphan Drug Act, have delved deeper into the development of drugs to treat rare diseases, they forge closer ties with patient advocates. While these relationships are driven by mutual interest, tensions sometimes arise because of divergent needs. We spoke to Heather Gartman, Regional Managing Director of Inventive Health, about the firm's recent white paper, The New Partnership Paradigm. Gartman discussed how patient advocates can more effectively influence pharmaceutical companies, some of the mistakes pharmaceutical companies make, and how the growing sophistication of patient advocates is changing the balance of power in these relationships. Heather, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Inventive Health has just released a, a new white paper that looks at closer collaborations between rare disease patient organizations and drug developers. This follows a paper you did last year that we discussed on this podcast. That first study found that patient advocates expect greater transparency from their pharmaceutical partners, want to play an increased role in clinical trial design and execution and see a role for themselves in education campaigns for patients and providers. What were you seeking to find out in this new study? We, we were wanting to see, you know, what, if any, differences there were between rare disease patient groups and, and, other, um, and other groups. You know, many rare disease groups have been at the forefront of pushing the envelope of patient involvement in the development process for a long time and, and, and driving for meaningful collaboration. You know, in addition, the relationships between patient advocacy groups and farmers are constantly evolving. So, you know, as the regulatory um, environment changes with regard to social media, patient reported outcomes, um, natural histories and other things, uh, we thought it'd be helpful to just, you know, check back with advocacy groups and really look at this uh, at rare disease groups in particular and, and, and see, you know, if things, what, what if anything is evolving. Um, and this is an ongoing project that we will be doing um, for Inventive Health. Well, you know, we often talk about the Orphan Drug Act and, and how it set the stage for companies putting greater focus on rare diseases. How did this shape the relationship between drug developers and patient advocates? I think the Orphan Drug Act did what it was intended to do. It, you know, spurred development of life-saving drugs 
in rare diseases. And, you know, it's yielded over 500 drugs for rare disease in, you know, about three decades. But with over 7,000 rare diseases, you know, this success leaves patients wanting more treatments and faster. For sure, the incentives provided under the Orphan Drug Act were among the reason pharma companies focused attention on these illnesses. I mean, no one is questioning that, but pharma companies quickly realized that collaborating with patient groups in rare disease was the best way to reach the goals, um, as these rare disease communities are often scattered across um, geographic areas. In addition, physicians um, have deep expertise in the disease are also few and far between. So without the help of patient organizations, it's very hard to bring these two constituencies together and get them involved in clinical trials. And in this sense, the Orphan Drug Act really set the stage and, and really triggered a lot of exciting activity. Well, obviously, there's a, a symbiotic relationship between pharmaceutical companies and rare disease patient advocates. In an ideal circumstance, what does each provide the other? It's a great question. You know, a relationship must be mutually beneficial, and it certainly can be. The, the type of analysis the FDA seeks in rare disease would be impossible today without the cooperation of patient groups. You know, rare disease patient groups have the individual patients and the data that the companies need, and um, the companies have the expertise and the funding that the patient groups may lack. But this, you know, this world is shifting and becoming more equal as patient groups begin to fund more research, and we talk about that um, in our report. Um, and pharma needs patients to deliver to the FDA, and uh, and payers the natural histories of rare diseases. So it's it's um it's really a, 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 I believe a mutually beneficial but becoming more um, equal relationship. Well, in talking to both pharmaceutical companies and rare disease patient advocates, you found that their goals were sometimes misaligned. I'm hoping you can draw some of those tensions out for us. One area this comes up in is in the area of repurposing drugs, exploring the world of existing drugs for their possible utility in treating rare diseases. Can you explain? Sure. The families of children who are gravely ill and are, often, and are often in desperate need of drugs that will ease symptoms, relieve the pain, or, you know, help their children just sleep through the night. So rather than developing an entirely novel medicine, the fastest way to meet the family's needs might be to look at the armamentarian in, in similar-looking illnesses, find a currently marketed drug, and speed it through regulatory review for this new rare indication. However, that would be, you know, while that would be a lot faster and cheaper, um, you know, certainly than the 10-year, $2 billion time frame that is typically looked at, for many reasons, this approach just, just does not always work and make sense for pharma. And this is a misalignment because the drug that the families need is not the type of medication the partner may want to develop or make sense for them to develop. You mentioned natural histories a moment ago. Uh, another area we sometimes see these tensions is in the area of natural history patient registries. Can you explain the important role these registries play in the tensions that sometimes arise over who has access and, and use of the data? Who owns the patient data is becoming more and more complicated and um, I think being spoken about more and more. Patients want to own their own data so they can share it with whoever they want for the benefit of a treatment or a cure. 
And we heard that patients are far less worried about privacy than the pharmaceutical companies are. Open patient registries can give researchers access to data sets that have potential to help find a treatment or cure quickly, and that has been shown to be true, and we mentioned that in our, um, in our report. One patient advocate who works um, mostly with children told us a really sad story. The, uh, the parents of a very sick child wanted to enroll the child in a clinical trial that looked promising, but all the DNA sequencing and other vital patient information had been compiled in a registry that was part of another company's clinical trial. The intellectual property issues prevented the parents from enrolling their child in this new trial, which might have helped the child. So, you know, these are some of the issues that I think are um, being debated and discussed, and um, certainly we need to figure out a path forward. Yeah, there's also some frustration expressed in the report that the industry sometimes uses patients for their own ends, such as in fights to ensure drugs are paid for. What are the biggest mistakes drug companies make in the way they work with patient advocates? You know, this was no different in the first report, um, you know, in this report than the first report. Collaboration early on is the key to a successful relationship. The biggest mistake is to not engage the patients early enough in the process, discussing the meaningful and realistic endpoint and the patient-reported outcomes. If a trial is set up from the beginning with some thought to these measures, by, by engaging the patients early on, they'll no doubt, you know, the, the, the success will be greater. Also, as we mentioned, the companies don't seem to be in it for the long haul, and that has um, caused frustration among patient advocates. The groups we spoke to, you know, want these partnerships to be like marriages um, that, you know, last over time, talking out the bump. And, you know, not like an experiment speed dating. Uh, I'd argue that patient advocates have become far more sophisticated, not only about science and drug development, but about the regulatory and financing landscape. One of the things we've seen in this regard is, is the rise of venture philanthropy, which you touch on. How does this change the dynamic between industry and, and advocates? I think you're absolutely right. I believe venture philanthropy puts patient groups and industry on equal footing, changing the entire dynamic to a true partnership. The examples we gave in the white paper are the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. Both have achieved some extraordinary things. They have really blazed new trails in financing and drug research. You know, they did not wait for a pharmaceutical company to come up with a uh, treatment or a cure, but wanted to get involved in solving the problems um, for their patient population themselves. But like all pioneers, they have taken, you know, some arrows in the back and some criticism. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was criticized when it sold the rights to future royalties it will receive from its partner, Vertex um, Pharmaceuticals, to the tune of $3.3 People felt these high numbers might drive up the price on future medications, but the foundation felt that it was uh, that you know it was effectively able to show that it was able to plow the money that it got uh, back into critically needed research. So they felt like it was um, the right thing to do for patients. But were patient advocates having their biggest impact in the drug development continuum today? Are they influencing clinical endpoints? The the way regulators evaluate drugs? What 
drug developers pursue and, and don't pursue? You know, I only have anecdotal information here, but I believe, you know, with different companies, they're impacting drug development in different ways. And all the companies uh, now are uh, involving patients in development, but in, in, in different ways. But one thing is for sure, the impact is real and the patients um, are influencing outcomes. I mean, General Motors would never design a car without talking to their targeted drivers uh, uh, and you know, what should the car be like? But yet manufacturers and developers of pharmaceutical drugs have been, you know, have not talked to patients about the drugs they've been developing in the past. But that has, I believe, changed. And, um, you know, we will learn more as we continue um, to, to watch this trend in patient centricity in the clinical development. Well, what's the takeaway here? How can patient advocates more effectively influence pharma companies and and how can pharma companies more effectively work with patient advocates? The key takeaway is more collaboration is needed to have the best patient outcomes for all. You know, we, we found that collaboration helps to better um, understand the natural course of a particular rare disease, um, define meaningful endpoints in the clinical process, including use of patient-reported outcomes, acceleration of patient and investigators to participate in clinical trials, which is of utmost importance, and then building a case that is compelling to regulators and payers, and ultimately speed the treatment to market, even if cures are, you know, years away. Efforts by the two foundations we mentioned and other examples of venture philanthropy are leveling the playing field. They're showing pharma companies that advocacy groups can have a tremendous influence on the course of drug development. But we know from talking to these organizations that there is nothing defiant in their stance. They aren't trying to compete with pharma companies. They're only trying to help their patient constituency. They view pharma as true partners and collaborators, and they want the relationship to be as fruitful and amicable as possible in the future and, you know, into the future. Heather Gartman, Regional Managing Director of Inventive Health. Heather, thanks as always. Thanks. And you can find the Inventive Health white paper, The New Partnership Paradigm, on the Inventive Health website at inventivehealth.com. Look under the Our Ideas tab. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.